You are listening to sermon audio from Grace Community Church of Gresham, Oregon. For more information about service times and ways to connect, visit us online at gracecc.net. So I'm curious, as we dive into God's Word this morning and continue on in our study of Genesis, chapter 32, how many of you have ever heard a sermon on Genesis 32? Because it's a familiar passage to a number of you. It's Jacob wrestling with God. How many of you have ever studied that, heard a sermon on that? Okay, some representation of you. Okay, that's good. Well, I think sometimes there's a tendency when we come to these stories these historical acts that did happen, and we read them through our filter, sometimes it's easy to, to not appreciate what, what's truly going on there. And for me, for a number of years, I would come to this story, and I would read it, and I, I would think about Jacob wrestling with God kind of from this paradigm. <laughs> and, and this is not what it was like, but this is where my mind often goes. And... This is a picture of Dutch Savage and Andre the Giant. There's some names in a blast from the past, right? For those of you who are old like me, you remember the days of Portland wrestling, right? And these were just some of them. Names like Rowdy Rowdy Piper and Jimmy Snuka and uh, Jesse the Body Ventura. And geez, I know I'm missing like almost all of them, but that's some of the names. And interestingly, Dutch Savage, the, the little guy there in the picture who's not so little, um, he was a believer and, and was actually a pastor in his years following Portland Wrestling. So I guess I missed my calling. I should have been a part of Portland Wrestling and then become a pastor. But that being said, you probably know Andre the Giant there from his amazing role in The Princess Bride, right? He was in that movie. Many of you have seen that. But Andre the Giant was 6'7 and 520 pounds. He was a large human being. And I remember actually going and getting to see him wrestle in person. My dad, I'll never forget this, took me, and this was in the heyday when Portland wrestling was really big, took me down to the Salem Armory, only time I've ever been in that building, probably the only time I ever will be in that building. And here's this wrestling match. Portland wrestling moved to Salem, I guess, for that occasion. And Andre the Giant, who was in high demand and you didn't get to see very often was the, you know, the, the main draw, the main card that night, and he wrestled seven other guys, him against seven guys, and he pinned all of them. He ate them for lunch. It was, it was outstanding. And his hallmark would be he'd make a big pile out of multiple wrestlers and then sit on them, and that's how he would win the match. That's how he beat them into submission. I mean, you have 525 pounds, you know, sit on you. But I remember this really vividly. And I remember walking down to the mat, actually, in between matches, because they'd let all the kids come down and do that, in between the matches that were going on. And the big thing with Portland wrestling was, you know, the wrestlers always said, oh, it's real, and, you know, what you see happening is really happening, and, you know, this is really hard work, and this is amazing. And I went down there, and when these guys would pick each other up and throw each other on the mat, there'd just be this huge boom, you know, and you'd think they broke every bone in his body, right? And I went down to this mat in between these matches at this event, and I, I was just looking at the mat, and I took my hand and I hit it, and it just was like this huge boom. And I went, okay, this is all a show. <laughs> and I was really upset by that. This, this isn't real. There's, there, there really is some showmanship going on here. When we read this story about Jacob wrestling with God, it was not like Portland wrestling. It, it, was, it was not a show. In fact, this was 
more than just a wrestling match. Jacob is, is literally fighting for his life. And this message is profoundly relevant for you and for me, and it's an incredibly powerful story. And we're going to work our way through the whole chapter into the, to the culmination of this story. So if you have a Bible, please open to Genesis chapter 32. And we're going to work our way through it. And then we'll come back and look at it together after we've uh, covered some ground together. So if you'll remember, just by way of context, Jacob has now left Uncle Laban. They actually parted in peace. And this is where we pick up the story as he's headed back to the promised land. So Jacob also went on his way, and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, this is the camp of God. So he named that place Mahanam, which means two camps. And now there's going to be a theme that's going to be developing through this chapter and into the next one. And it's really pretty remarkable when you step back and look at what we're about to read through this lens. This idea of two camps is now going to begin to be developed. And it starts out with two camps, Uncle Laban and Uncle Jacob, or excuse me, Jacob, not Uncle Jacob. And they start out in hostility and they part in peace. And this is going to culminate in Two more camps of Esau and Jacob, and they're going to meet in hostility and part in peace. And in between are these multiple two-camp sightings. And here's one right here. Jacob, God blesses him incredibly to be able to see angels and really to be reassuring him of God's presence with him. And so Jacob says, wow, there's two camps. There's mine and there's theirs. And now you're going to see these two camps begin to be developed through this passage. So we go on and it says, Jacob sent messengers ahead of him to his brother Esau in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. Now again, just to reset things for those of you who might have missed this or not been a part of this series or maybe haven't read this in a while, it's been 20 years since Jacob has seen his brother Esau, and they did not part on good, good terms. First, Jacob swindled him out of his birthright, and then he deceived his dad Isaac and got Esau's blessing. So he got the birthright and the blessing from his brother Esau, and Esau was so angry with him, and understandably so he was angry with him, but he wanted to kill him. And so Jacob went on the run. That's what precipitated everything we've looked at here these last several weeks over the course of these last 20 years in their lives. So understand, this is a big deal that, he, that Jacob's headed back to the promised land because now he's headed back Esau's direction. And what he does here is very strategic. And what we will see and what we have seen in Jacob's life is everything he does is seemingly very calculated, very strategic, and very intentional. And so it says he sends messengers ahead of him to Esau in the land of Seir, only this is nowhere near the direction Jacob is going to go. I mean, look at this with me, and this, this isn't the greatest map, but for those who may be listening to this and can't see the map, Jacob is gonna be going um, further to the, the west. And if you look there at the bottom, that's where Edom is. Edom is nowhere near where Jacob is going to go. So Jacob is going out of his way to send these messengers, these emissaries, if you will, to his brother Esau. And why is he doing that? Because he's being intentional and strategic. His brother is eventually gonna hear that he's come back to the promised land and he's gonna seek him out. So Jacob basically is launching a preemptive strike. He's going to him first. 
And look what he does. He instructs the messengers, this is what you're to say to, our, to my Lord Esau. Your servant, Jacob, says, I have been staying with Laban and have remained there till now. And the meta message here is I haven't been hiding or sneaking around or avoiding you. This is where I've been. I have cattle and donkeys, sheep and goats, male and female servants. Now I'm sending this message to my Lord. This is very deferential, very humble, that I may find favor in your eyes. Basically, hey, Esau, I don't plan on tricking you, taking anything else from you, claiming anything you have. I I have all I need. I'm good. In fact, this last part here, Esau, can we just, can we just let the past be the past? Can, can we just have a fresh start? And this is how Esau responds. When the messengers returned to Jacob, they said, we went to your brother Esau, and now he's coming to meet you. Oh, good, with 400 men. Oh. <laughs> now put yourself into this story. You send this very humble, very gracious, very reconciliatory, if that is a word, message to your brother, who you have not talked to or seen for 20 years, who wanted to kill you the last you parted ways. And there's silence. And all you hear is, oh, he's coming with 400 of his closest friends and family. In great fear and distress, Jacob divided the people who were with him into two groups. This could also be translated to camps. And the flocks and herds and camels as well. Because he thought if Esau comes and attacks one camp, the camp or the group that is left may escape. Once again, very strategic, very intentional because he is scared out of his wits and probably any one of us would be. And so as the story continues, Jacob now prays. And this is the first time, at least in what's been written before us, that Jacob has prayed in 20 years. The last time we saw him praying was when he originally went on the run. And this is what he prays. Oh God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, Lord, you who said to me, go back to your country and your relatives and I will make you prosper, I am unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness you've shown your servant. I had only my staff when I crossed this Jordan, but now I've become two camps. Save me, I pray, from the hand of my brother Esau, for I am afraid he will come and attack me and also the mothers with their children. But you have said, I will surely make you prosper and will make your descendants like the sand of the sea, which cannot be counted. This isn't necessarily the Jacob we're accustomed to seeing or hearing from in this way. And this is an incredibly powerful, beautiful, humble prayer. And part of its power comes from the fact that he asks God to act out of God's character. God, this is who you are. God, these are the promises you've made to me. And I think we absolutely should ground our prayers in the character and promises of God. We should appeal to who God is. We should appeal to what he's promised. This is a beautiful, powerful prayer and a necessary one. And so he spends the night there and from what he had with him, he selected a gift for his brother Esau. And again, calculating, shrewd, strategic, And this is what he does. And this is an amazing gift. 200 female goats, 20 male goats, 200 ewes, 20 rams, 30 female camels with young, which in and of itself would have been an incredible gift. 40 cows, 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys, 10 male donkeys. 
Scholars agree this is an over-the-top gift that he is going to be sending now to his brother Esau. This is more than you would give to a king that you were paying tribute to. It's an exorbitantly generous, amazing gift because Jacob is a sharp cookie. His life is on the line. And now his brother is coming towards him and he doesn't know what intent he really has. And so it says he put all this livestock in the care of his servants, each herd by itself, and said to his servants, go ahead of me and keep some space between the herds. Well, wouldn't they normally do that? What's, what's that for? He also instructed the second, the third, and all the others who followed the herds, you are to say the same thing to Esau when you meet him. And be sure to say, your servant, Jacob, is coming behind us. For he thought, I will pacify him with these gifts I'm sending on ahead. And later, when I see him, perhaps he will receive me. So Jacob's gifts went on ahead of him, but he himself spent the night in the camp. And again, this is so strategic and so intentional because now Esau is about to meet these wave after wave after wave of incredibly generous gifts. And there's, there's intent to this. Jacob, for number one, wants to wear him down because if Esau is going to be ambushing him or attacking him, each time they prepare to do that, what they're gonna see is just all this livestock that keeps coming towards them. So he's gonna wear him down, he's gonna slow him down because now these flocks are gonna be joining Esau's band of 400 and the larger they get, the slower they have to move and he's also gonna try to cool him down. As he said here, he's gonna try and pacify him because by the time he gets to Jacob, he's gonna have all of Jacob's gifts that he just sent him with him, and he's gonna have the servants that Jacob sent with him, and they're gonna be intermingled among Esau's men, so how is he going to attack Jacob then? This is, this is very shrewd, very, very shrewd. And it says, that night Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 sons, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. And after he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions. So Jacob was left alone. And this is the same picture we had 20 years ago when Jacob first came to the promised land, not the promised land, left the promised land and came to this area, to Haran. He had nothing but his staff then. That's all he had. And now he has all these possessions, all this family, and he sends them on the hand. But at the end of the day here, literally, he's all alone. And this is what happens. And a man wrestled with him till daybreak. And this is so amusing to me because you're reading this story and all of a sudden there's this little sentence, this one, that's embedded in this story. And the more you think about it and the more you step back and look at it, you go, what? How did that work? I mean, what, what's really going on here? I mean, what's... So Jacob is all alone, it's, it's now nightfall, and some dude comes walking along and says, hey, I'm walking through there. No, you're not. Yes, I am. No, you wanna, wanna wrestle? Okay, come on. I mean, is that, is that how it happened? Or this guy walks up to Jacob and says, you know, you always been this ugly, or did it take some time? And then they start, you know, did he insult them and they start to wrestle? I mean, well, obviously not, but this, the way this is written, you wonder what really happened here? Well. Evidently, this guy jumps Jacob, and, and now he's fighting for his life. And by the way, we know from doing some math and piecing some things together from the stories that we've been looking at in leading up to this, Jacob now is about 97 years old. 
So what kind of a wrestling match was this? And it says it went on till daybreak. So this is an incredible picture. Now, I don't know how many of you wrestled, but I wrestled in junior high, and even at that age, at that level of competition, it was profoundly exhausting. It's, it's, it's exhausting, and to have wrestled seemingly hours, 97 years old, there's, what's really going on here? This seems to be more than just a, a physical wrestling match, and that's because it is so much more than that. Because as we continue on, it says, when the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. And notice it doesn't say here he, he, he gripped it and then with his overpowering strength did this and, or you know, he jumped on him or he got him in this arm bar and, you know, and then somehow bent him so that his hip, he just touched him. Which infers that he was holding back that this, this guy is incredibly powerful. Who, who is this guy? And then this guy said, let me go, for it's daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go until you bless me. Well, that's interesting. Jacob himself said that he's already been blessed. Remember his prayer to God? When I came here 20 years ago, I had nothing but the staff in my hand. And what does he have now? Absolutely everything in, that this culture would say you need to be fulfilled and, and blessed. He has an exorbitant amount of wealth. I mean, he's so wealthy, he's able to extend, send this exorbitant gift to, to Esau to try to pacify him. And evidently, he's still got plenty of livestock left. He's got a huge family. He's got more wives than he knows what to do with, and that's a whole other story. I mean, he's, he's, he's the head of his clan. He's going back in every sense to the promised land, successful with everything he could possibly want, and yet he asks to be blessed, and he will not let go until he's blessed. There is a desperation here. There is an urgency here, for sure. And then the man asked him, what is your name? Jacob, he answered. And then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. And that's what Israel literally means, to struggle. To struggle with God, more specifically. And this is fascinating, because we know that in the Bible, <clears throat> especially the Old Testament, names mean something. And when your name changes, it, it, when God gives you a new name, it says something about your character, about your potential, about your future. And, and there's so much here. We don't have time to unpack all of it. But this is prophetic in that Israel as a nation is going to do exactly that. They're going to struggle with God and man throughout their whole history. They still are. And Jacob himself personally is going to wrestle and struggle and has been with God and men. That's exactly what's been going on here. We're talking more than a physical wrestling match with that. He's been wrestling with God, really, his, his whole life. And so Jacob says, please tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask my name? And then he blessed him there. 
And I wish we knew what that blessing was. Because over and over again, as I've looked at blessings in Scripture, they're verbal. So, so what was it that he is saying to Jacob? We don't know, but it's a profound blessing. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, it is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. Now the cat's out of the bag. Jacob has put two and two together, and this mystery guy isn't a guy. This is God himself. And that's why he named that place, I saw God face to face. That's what that name means. So the sun rose above him as he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the Israelites do not eat the tendon attached to the socket of the hip because the socket of Jacob's hip was touched near the tendon. And that is still true for practicing Jews today. It's an amazing story, and it's, it's a powerful story. And as is always the case, it tells us so much about God, but it also tells us about ourselves. This is more than a wrestling match between Jacob and, and God. This is really a picture for all of us to, to learn from here. You know, we talk about this value all the time, and it's true, and Scripture teaches this unequivocally. In fact, in most cases, it just assumes it, that we are discovering and growing together with God with one another in community. And you hear us talk about that all the time. You have to be in community in order to grow and experience God. But that's not the only place you grow and experience God. In fact, at some point, you have to discover God for yourself. You have to wrestle with him one-on-one. -on -one. And many of you know my story, but years ago when I received Jesus Christ into my life, when I wrestled with God and had been wrestling with God in my life, I ultimately had to do that by myself, him and me. I heard the gospel in a setting not unlike this one at a camp, and the gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ. It is the reality, it is the story of the Bible that this world is broken. God is redeeming it and doing something about it, and we're all broken and he's doing something about it. He's keeping his promises to have always done something about that, gonna do something about that, and all those promises were fulfilled in Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago when Jesus comes, lives the spirit-filled life, shows us what right relationship with God and other people is like, and then he dies on a cross in our place, taking all our brokenness on himself, and in exchange, he rises from the dead, and in exchange, we get his righteousness, his power for right living, and someday he's gonna come back and he's gonna fully complete the redemption process, hallelujah, I hope it's tomorrow, let's just make it today. But it is gonna happen. That's, in essence, the gospel. And I heard that at this camp. And I knew that it was God speaking directly into me and my heart and asking me to do business with him. And so I went and sat out under a tree that night, as did everybody who was gathered there, we were told to go away and meet God alone, and that's exactly what happened. I met God under a, a huge Douglas fir tree some years ago, but it was a wrestling match because like Jacob, I was afraid. What would my parents think? What would my friends think? What did I think? What was gonna happen to me if I really 
received this amazing God into my life. And he might make me a pastor someday. He might make me a missionary, which I love being both, by the way. But I wonder for you and for those who will be listening to this, how many have truly wrestled with God and met him alone? Because for some of you, and for some who will be listening to this, you've grown up in the quote-unquote church, or you've grown up in a Christian family. You've, you've heard the gospel over and over again, and yet we see these defining moments, these times that happen in people's lives where that gets challenged and tested. We see it often with young adults as they go off to college, and it gets challenged and tested, and all of a sudden, it gets exposed as, well, their faith quite possibly has never been personal. It's been cultural, it's been what they've been raised in, but now they're confronted with this reality of, do I really believe this or not? And really the litmus test for that is, well, has God gotten personal with you? Is he your God? Have you wrestled with him and and responded to him and received him into your life? We also see this tested in other ways. You'll hear of people, I talk to people all the time, they were a part of a great church, they moved from a, 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 and had to leave a church family or what have you, and, and so they're looking for another church and they quite, can't ever quite truly find something that captures what they had. And so they, they get busy and, and they eventually stop looking around for a church family and so they end up just stopping going to church. And I've talked to innumerable people in my neighborhood who would fit this paradigm, who would say they they know and love Jesus, but they're not connected to any kind of church community. They were at one point, but they're not anymore. And it just makes you wonder, well, why? Did God ever get personal with you? Is he your God? Do you know him? Because if you do, you're gonna want to grow in him. And you're only gonna grow in him to a certain degree when you're in community because we discover and grow in God together. And so it just begs the question for you and for me, has he gotten personal with you? Is he truly your God? Has there been a defining moment where you have received him into your life as your God? Because that's exactly the blessing that's being talked about here. Again, think with me about Jacob's life. He had everything that his culture would say was blessing. He had family, he had stuff. He was the leader of his clan. And yet, what was missing? And we look at the arc of Jacob's life and he's been wrestling with and struggling his entire life. So desperate to get the familial blessing from his dad that he would lie, that he would disguise himself as his brother and try to deceive his dad into, into getting that. What, what in the world was he looking for? For 20 years wrestling with good old Uncle Laban who took advantage of him and manipulated him and lied to him. But through it all, Jacob still ends up getting wealth and, and a family, and he has everything he could want, and yet he seems to still be struggling, and that's what you see in his life. And this is the culmination point. His greatest struggle actually hasn't been with his brother. His greatest struggle hasn't been with Uncle Laban. All this time, really, he's been struggling against and with God. And I think he realizes that as he's wrestling literally, physically with God. There's more going on here than a physical wrestling match. 
This is a defining moment in Jacob's life where he realizes the greatest blessing that any one of us could ever have, including him, is God himself. And he realizes he does not have that. And that's why he will not let go of him. I want you. And that's exactly the blessing that's being talked about here, the blessing of having and knowing this amazing God. But it means welcoming his presence into our lives. And most scholars agree, this is a pivot point in Jacob's life. There's going to be a change that happens. And we already see it happening, even in this prayer, precipitating this wrestling match. Did you hear the dependency from Jacob? This guy who is shrewd, who is strategic, who has always calculated and figured things out and had a plan and worked the plan. And he's come to the end of himself and he's desperate. He's about to face his brother and it may cost him everything, including his life. And so he cries out to God out of desperation, realizing that I need God. But once this amazing God comes into our lives, he's gonna begin to intrude on your daily life and my daily life. Because once we're in right relationship with him, he then is gonna begin calling us to have right relationship with other people. And that's gonna mean changes. That's gonna mean instead of looking To be first, we choose to be last. It means instead of expecting other people to serve us, we serve other people. It means rather demanding forgiveness from someone, we choose to extend forgiveness first. There's gonna be these changes that he's gonna demand if we're going to follow him and trust and obey him. And there are a lot of messages that are gonna come at you and that are coming at you and me that are gonna say that's not really necessary. You can have the blessings of trusting and obeying God with actually not trusting and obeying God. And this is one of the ways that message will come to you. Well, God is a God of love. You can can do what you want. You can say what you want. You can act however you want. God will forgive you. God's a God of love. And yet, God is a God of love to be sure, but he is the one who sets the terms for our relationships, for our sexuality, for our money, for our time, for what we say, for what we think, for what we do. And yet we have this culture that wants to take the love of God and use it as a license to live however we want. The the book of Jude in the New Testament talks really clearly about this. There are certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago and they have secretly slipped in among you. They're ungodly people who do what? Who pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. You see, this God is the one who sets the terms for what it means to follow him. And there are some of you here this morning, you you know the Lord, or who are listening to this, who know the Lord, but you're wrestling with him right now because he has intruded upon your life and he's asking you to trust and obey him and you don't want to or you're wrestling with that, you're weighing that out. You pick the area of your life. And yet, this is what Jesus said it meant to trust and obey him and to follow him. He said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. Those are Those are hard words, but those are blessed words, and those are the words 
of life from our Lord himself. And it brings up this dynamic we see happening in this passage. It's, we win by losing. I mean, think of it this way. Who won this wrestling match? Well, it was a tie on the surface, right? But, but it really wasn't a tie. It's kind of a trick question, really. They, they both won and lost. It turns out this wasn't just any guy who Jacob was wrestling. This was God himself. And this amazing God, this God who created the universe by his word, this, in, this overwhelming, amazing power and presence who we've sung about earlier in this service is holding back. Instead of crushing Jacob, which he could so easily do, he saves him in, instead. And this same God will go on to allow himself to be crushed. Isaiah 53 says that Jesus was crushed for us. He was crushed on our behalf. He lost in order to win. In order that we could find life and joy and blessing so that we could win. Jacob hangs on to him and says, I'm not gonna let you go till you bless me. And what does God do? He reaches over and touches his hip, but game over done. And some scholars believe Jacob walked with a limp the rest of his life. He kind of lost, but he actually won because he found this God. And what he will find when he meets his brother Esau next week, what he will find for the rest of his life is that this God is everything he promises to be and that this God is enough. In fact, what is so telling to me is that Jacob finds this God in his moment of greatest struggle. Because you will find this God in your deepest insecurities, in the most profound difficulties, when your worst fears come true, when you're in the depths of pain, when you're hurting from loss, and when you're facing a crisis, man, that's when this God shows up. And you will find, and my prayer for you and me is that we will find that he truly is enough. If you have him, you have everything. You have the ultimate blessing. Many years ago, my father-in-law um, had open-heart surgery and what I'm about to tell you was traumatic for the entire family, but this is from my wife's perspective. This was many years ago, and we had little kids at the time, and I stayed here with them, and Jamie went up north to the Seattle area where this surgery was to take place. And um, her dad went into open-heart surgery, was having a valve put in, had some bypasses done, and... You know, this is fairly routine stuff these days. It's not if you're the one on the table, but the reality is it's, it's fairly routine. And he goes in for this surgery and it seems to be successful and they bring him out and he won't stop bleeding to the point that they're alarmed that his life is in danger because maybe some of the sutures came loose or they couldn't figure out why. So a second time, they wheel him in, crack him open, and do open heart surgery. And the surgeon checks all the stitches 
comes out and says everything looks exactly the way it should be. We don't know why he's bleeding, but we hope that we found maybe some of the sources, but we're not really sure. Everything looks the way it should be. So they sewed him back up, put him into recovery, and he continued to bleed. And so as Jamie and her brother and sister are are waiting with their dad's life on the line and my mother-in-law there as well, all of a sudden they hear life flight come in and land nearby. And you know, that's, that happens, right? But they found out later that life flight came in because Jamie's dad had exhausted all of his blood type in the hospital and they had to bring more in to try to save his life. And so he goes in for a third open heart surgery. And so they're waiting, and they've been up all night, and as my wife has has told the story and shared it with me, things are not looking good. And it looks like they're gonna lose their dad. And in that moment, when she's half nauseous from grief and being up all night, God meets her, and through the Holy Spirit says, I am enough for you. Whatever happens, I'm enough. And it was a defining moment in my wife's life where what we're talking about this morning was truly tested by an incredibly traumatic crisis, and God was enough. And so as our worship team comes, and as we respond to God's word together, we have deliberately designed this service for you to have an extended time here to hear from God and where necessary to wrestle with God and to hear from him and respond to him. So I'm gonna invite our prayer teams. I know it's earlier than normal in the service, but I'm gonna ask our prayer teams to get up and be off to the sides here. We have communion off to the sides and this is your time to do some wrestling with God. It starts with receiving his blessing into your life, which means receiving him. And that is a defining moment where you choose to receive him into your life as your Lord and Savior. It doesn't just happen. You have to ask, you have to receive. But then for all of us, he will call us to trust and obey him and he will put his finger on our lives And in certain areas where he will call us to repentance, he will call us to leave brokenness in order to trust him for something better. And so one of my prayers for you this morning is that he would do just that. But some of you are wrestling with him this morning. You're wondering, should I trust God with this? Should I obey him with this? And the path to blessing is to trust and obey him. And so I hope that you will choose that path this morning that you will do whatever business you need to do with him and that you will take communion if the spirit leads you to do so to remind yourself of what he's done for you and the power that he's given you to live this life that he calls you to, that you will come and pray with the members of our prayer team if we can pray with you for anything. But this is your time. Sing these words, think about them if you'd like, meditate on them, bow your head quietly, however you wanna respond, this is your chance to wrestle with the God who seeks me and you and calls you out of darkness into life.
Let's pray together. Lord, thank you that you are the God who seeks us, who comes to us, just like you came to Jacob. He wrestled with you and he realized that the greatest blessing he had wasn't his stuff or all the trappings of success, but his greatest blessing was you and he would not let go of you. God, would you help us once again to remember the greatest blessing we have is you and to believe that and now to listen to you as you call us into deeper blessing by trusting and obeying you. You are an amazing God. We love you and we seek you together. In Jesus' name, amen. And he is a great God and he is the sufficient God. I realize I never finished that story about Jamie's dad. He did survive that surgery and he was enough and God was enough when we lost him some years later. This is the God who at some point you have to personally wrestle with and decide, is he who he says he is? Has he done what he says he has done? Can he be trusted? Should he be obeyed? And the answer to all that is yes, he is that God. And the greatest blessing isn't what you get in terms of stuff or relationships or success. The greatest blessing he gives you is himself. And if you have him, you have everything you need, truly. You, you have enough because he is enough. And the wonderful thing about worship is it's not contained to a 80-minute block on a Sunday morning. Worship is the orientation of our hearts and lives. It's something we do every moment with what we say, what we think, what we do. And so we want to encourage you that just because the service has stopped, our worship doesn't. Our prayer teams are still here. There's still communion there. And as you leave here, if you know this God, if you've wrestled with him and made him your own, then he goes with you through the power of his Holy Spirit because he is a great God. And he's so great that this is what he's done for each one of us. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He took it away and he nailed it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. What a great God. Only a great God could do that. And he's a God we can trust, and he's a God who we can follow because he's completely trustworthy. So I want to pray that over you. God, we thank you that you are the God who will meet us in our weakest moments, in our times of greatest need, and you are the God who promises to be enough. So Lord, would we wrestle with you? Would we consider what you say? But then would we choose to follow you and to trust you, even when it makes no sense to do so, even when our circumstances say otherwise? Because the path, the true blessing is through you. You are the greatest blessing, and you are the God who wants to bless our lives. And so Lord, would we let you by trusting and obeying you. And as we go from here, would we leave remembering the power of your spirit, that the life you call us to, what you promise to us is ours to have through following you and trusting your spirit. So God, help us to live that way. And thank you for this time to be with you. In Jesus' name, amen. So go and live for him. 
Thank you for listening to Sermon Audio from Grace Community Church. For more information about service times and ways to connect, visit us online at gracecc.net.